And now we return to the Gospel of John. For the past couple of weeks, we've been in chapter 6, which is rightly so, because chapter 6 is full of a lot of stuff. Jesus does and says lots of things, and He's done and said a lot of things so far in the Gospel. And this morning, we get to see some people's responses to what Jesus has said and done in the past couple of chapters. And the reviews are not so good. We're in John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate me, hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people in Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man who they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as I pray. Oh God, this morning we come to you and acknowledge that at this time of year, it's easy for us to be looking for some encouragement, to just feel filled up as we're tired and worn out from a long year, looking to, to be encouraged. 
This morning, though, God, I ask that you would send your Spirit to our hearts. Help us to deal honestly with ourselves, to see the truth that we need you more than anything else, and that here in this passage, through the power of your Spirit, are the words of life. I ask that you would make us new as we hear you proclaim your love for us. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Have you hung your Christmas pickle yet? That might sound silly to you, but I grew up every year running into my grandmother's house with my brother and sister fighting to find the Christmas pickle ornament hanging hidden somewhere in the tree, and so get to open the first gift. And now our girls fight on Christmas morning to find it on our tree, for we have a Christmas pickle ornament as well. I heard growing up that the tradition of the Christmas pickle was to remind us of our German ancestors who were so poor when they first came to America. They couldn't afford ornaments. They only could hang pickles on the tree instead. Maybe you have a Christmas pickle. Maybe you have heard this story before. Well, last year I did some digging. Turns out in the late 1970s and early 80s, the retail store Woolworths started uh, importing German glass uh, ornaments. And in the first couple batches, some of them got a little deformed in shipping and transit, and they actually looked like pickles. Instead of tossing them out, they concocted this story about a tiny German village called Spreewald that was so poor they couldn't afford ornaments, so they hung pickles on the tree instead. They totally cooked up a tale, and we all bought it. A tale about a poverty and honoring our ancestors and tradition and, and remembering where we come from. It's the kind of story that we want to believe in, right? A story that, that makes us feel respectful and yet noble. One that connects us deeply to the past and yet helps us feel like we've achieved something, maybe, maybe wealth even, above what our ancestors have had. None of us like stories that make us look foolish, or needy, or incompetent in some way. In fact, I found several uh, websites where people are arguing against the Woolworth story. Presumably, my guess is because they don't want a family tradition of theirs to be based on clever marketing. People don't like the story that Jesus has written so far. They don't like the narrative of His life and His ministry. They don't like the things that He's done they don't like the things he hasn't done. They don't like the things that he has said. And so in this passage, people are trying to convince him to be different, or they're trying to convince themselves that there's actually nothing that special about him. And Jesus' response is very convicting to us. You see, some things don't change. We all, like the people in this passage, struggle to take Jesus just as he is, words and actions. We want Him to be different. We want Him to not be so harsh, not so demanding. I don't want Him to be so anti-sin, or at least anti-my sin. We want Jesus to be more present, more engaged with what's going on in our lives, more visible, more prompt. And this passage confirms to us what the book of Hebrews tells us, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And oftentimes, probably not the Jesus you want, but definitely the Jesus that you need. Just two points for us this morning, starting with 
probably not the Jesus that you want. Now, there are three groups of people in this passage that we can identify with when it comes to him not being the Jesus that we want. The first one is his own brothers. After all that he has done in his life so far, healing, performing miracles, feeding 5,000 people, walking on water, teaching with this incredible depth and insight, their response is simple. Why don't we take the show on the road? Jesus, why don't you go to Judea? This is the festival of the booths. There are going to be so many people there. Verse 4, no one does works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. The brothers knew that Jesus had some kind of power. Something was going on with him. He could perform these miracles, and if there was some kind of untapped potential in him, this was the time to capitalize on it. Go up to the feast. Go and show yourself to the world. But John tells us that this was said out of unbelief. They knew he was powerful. They knew he was special, but they hadn't bought into the whole Son of God, Savior, Christ thing just yet. They wanted Jesus to go do something where everyone could see so that His notoriety would be increased. Do something so everyone sees. Then we've got the Jews, right? And this doesn't refer to the whole group of ethnic Israelites, but when John writes about the Jews, he's talking about the religious elite, the the leaders of the people. In the middle of this festival, Jesus gets up in the temple and He begins to teach, and their response is, how does this man have learning when he has not studied? What they're saying is, how can he talk like this when he hasn't been checked out by us? See, if they, they were the gatekeepers of influence in the culture. If someone was going to have a voice in society, if they were going to be able to impact the people in any way, they had to go through the religious elite. They had to study and fall in line with one of the religious philosophical schools. And these men are recognizing he hasn't done that. We haven't okayed this, and yet here he is speaking as if he has been taught, but he hasn't been checked out by us. He's gone outside the lines. He's not fitting into the mold. He has also removed them from their self-appointed seat of authority. Jesus, you you need to fit my expectations for you. You need to fall in line. There's a way that we do things, and Jesus is not doing that. Then we have the crowd, the people, the third group that we can identify with. Some are saying he's a good guy. Some are saying that they know him. They know where he's from. They knew his parents. And so they doubt the validity that he could be Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, you're just too normal. We want someone special. Then some people are saying he's leading others astray. Some of them even say he's possessed by a demon. Jesus, you're too radical. We just want someone a little more normal, a little more peaceful. Each one of these groups want something from Jesus. They want Jesus to be something specific. And it reminds me of the scene from the Will Ferrell movie, Talladega Nights. If you haven't seen it, it's hilarious. He plays a NASCAR driver sitting down at dinner with his family and friends, and he says grace, and he prays to sweet, tiny little baby Jesus. And his wife interrupts him and says, you don't have to pray to baby Jesus. You know he grew up, right? And his response, I included it in your bulletin as a quote to think about. He says, 
when I say grace, I like Christmas Jesus best. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. His buddy looks across the table and he says, I like to think of my Jesus as wearing a tuxedo t-shirt because it's like I'm formal, but I'm here to party. And I like to party, so I want my Jesus to party too. The question is, I like my Jesus to what? Fill in the blank. What is it that you want Jesus to do for you? What are you expecting Jesus to do? Do you want the Jesus who uses his, his powers to fix your problems? Do you want the Jesus who performs a work in your life so that everyone can see? Do you want a Jesus who fits the mold, provides you with some wisdom and some guidance so that you are able to engage with whatever kind of crisis fits, uh, comes along in your life? Do you want the Jesus that's going to help you solidify your seat of influence or authority? Or maybe you want the Jesus that just helps you feel better about your long-term prospects, your eternal perspective, and then just kind of fades into the background and leaves you alone in your day-to-day life, doesn't really impact your habits or your schedule. We all, like the people in this passage, have these expectations on who Jesus should be, what He should and shouldn't do, what He should and shouldn't say, what He can and can't ask of us. And whether we know it or not, we engage or distance ourselves from Jesus based on how He is performing. Is He meeting our expectations or not? That's not Jesus. Jesus didn't live a perfectly sinless life to make you successful or strong. He didn't die an unjust death on the cross to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. He didn't rise from the dead to give you a better job or a secure retirement. He's not the snap his fingers and fix your marriage problems or give you a better dating profile. Probably Jesus that you expect to perform in this way, in that way, to say and do these things, that's probably not the Jesus that you're going to find. The Jesus that we find here, though, is always, definitely, the Jesus that we need. Again, three things in this passage that Jesus says show us that Jesus is far bigger, far better than our expectations, that He's actually the Jesus that we need. The first thing comes in this conversation regarding Moses and circumcision and the Sabbath. Kind of confusing, kind of strange, almost feels out of place. Verses 21 to 24, Jesus refers back to the miracle He performed in chapter 5. There was a man who was an invalid for 38 years lying beside a pool, hoping that when the water of the pool was stirred up, he could get in and be healed miraculously. And one Sabbath day, Jesus does it. He heals the man right there on the Sabbath. Now, you might know that that work, performing work on the Sabbath was against the Mosaic law and that the leaders in Jerusalem at the time were very meticulous in keeping the law and making sure others kept the law as well. So they heard about this healing that Jesus had performed, and they get upset. Jesus says, this makes no sense. He calls into question their habit of circumcising the, the child born after the eighth day. This was a law also given to them by Moses, although Jesus says this comes from the fathers. He says, 
there's a situation that takes place. If a baby boy is born on the Sabbath, the following eighth day is also a Sabbath. And in order to keep the Mosaic law, you will perform the circumcision on the Sabbath. This happens. Jesus says, you know this will happen. He says, do you not remember also that circumcision was a pointer, a reminder that God must do a work in the heart of a person in order for them to become part of the covenant community? Circumcision showed us that sin and death must be cut away from someone's heart in order for them to become whole. You'll point to someone's need on the Sabbath, but Jesus says, you get mad at me when I actually do it? Circumcision shows that we need to be made whole. And Jesus says, you're mad at me because I actually made someone whole on the Sabbath. He did what circumcision shows we all need. The question is, do you know that you need to be made whole? Do you recognize how much you need to be restored? How much you need God to do a work in your life? The second instance we see of Jesus being the Jesus we need talks about that. Once in verse 16 and once in verse 28, Jesus says that He doesn't come on His own authority. He's not there of His own accord, but that He was sent by someone, God the Father. His words, His actions come as the directive of the one who sent Him. They are God's words, His actions, God the Father who created and sustains all things sent Him to do and say the things that He's done and said, which is really good for us. Because if anyone can fix what's been broken, it's the person who made it. I got a piece of mail this week from Hyundai who makes my car, and they let me know that my car was affected by a recall. It said, there's a chance that if you were in a rear-end collision, the trunk might fuse at the latch. So make an appointment with your local Hyundai dealer and they can fix it for you. And my first thought was, that seems very arbitrary. Why not just send me like a $100 Visa gift card and say, go get it fixed somewhere of your choosing? And in my cynicism, I thought, well, of course, it's because they can probably fix it for cheaper than 100 bucks, and so they're more concerned about the bottom line than convenience. But if you take a step back and think about it, it actually makes the most sense. They're the ones that made the car. They're the ones that know what's gone wrong or could go wrong, and so they are best equipped to fix it. We need our Maker to fix us, to restore our hearts and minds, to mend the brokenness in the world brought on by sin. We need redemption, a repaired relationship with God and with others. God created all things out of nothing, you and I included. He knows what's gone wrong in our hearts. He is the only one equipped to fix it. Jesus says, that's why He sent me, to fix it, to fix you. And then the third instance, verses 5, verse 8, and in verse 30, this phrase, not my time, my hour has not yet come, not His hour. It's repeated over and over again. And it's all the same meaning, even though the words are slightly different. The first time Jesus uses this to respond to His brothers who say, let's all go up to Jerusalem together. Let's get this show on the road. And Jesus says, it's not my time. 
The last instance of it in verse 30, the author uses it to explain why no one arrested him, even though they were all seeking to. Why he wasn't executed right there on the spot, because his hour had not yet come. And that tells us that there's something more to this phrase than just scheduling, than just time. In fact, throughout the Gospel of John, this phrase is used to sharpen the focus of Jesus' purpose. His time is cross time. His time refers to the, the, the hour appointed for Him to go to the cross. Everything He did and said was focused on the cross because that's where God's mission of restoration and redemption is carried out. Everything in His life points to the cross. His words, His actions, His miracles, even His birth. Christmas is all about the cross. Because the cross is this cosmic Venn diagram, right? It's all about sin and death and failure and judgment and punishment and where it mashes up with obedience and perfection and earned righteousness and favor. And where those two things meet is redemption. It's rescue. It's the only place that those two things can exist. By God's grace and His mercy, Jesus' obedience mashes up with our sinfulness, and His earned favor is exchanged for our punishment on the cross. It's the only place that it could happen. It could only happen when it did happen. It's the only place all of this could come together, but it wasn't by accident. Jesus wasn't just waiting for an appropriate time to strike. It was planned, agreed upon from the foundation of the world. The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 4 that this was all part of the plan from the beginning. Galatians 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, when Jesus' hour had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons redemption, restoration in its fullest form, achieved exactly when God planned for it to happen. Whether we like it or want it or not, you and I, we need Jesus, the one that was sent by God to the cross to heal us and to restore us from our brokenness. We all know and love The Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, or perhaps like me, you prefer the Jim Henson Muppets adaptation. Here's this businessman, Scrooge, cares only about the bottom line, only about efficiency, making money, making sure that things run smoothly. He doesn't want anyone to be happy, doesn't care about emotions. He doesn't even give his workers any kind of time off to spend with their families. But then, in the course of one night, In an experience with three supernatural beings, he comes to understand what's missing from his life. And he wakes up on Christmas morning the most joyful, the most festive, the most giving person out there. All he needed was a little Christmas spirit to change him. But I've always wondered, what about December 26th or January 15th or April 1st? Will that change have lasted? Will he be happy and festive and giving and caring 
when Christmas time is no more? Will the Christmas spirit have actually changed him? I don't think so. Don't make happiness or comfort or friendship or experience or things or the Christmas spirit, some kind of functional Jesus that you look to for change, hoping that it will solve the problems of your life, that it will meet your needs. Don't trust in those things, especially when the Jesus that you actually need stands ready to redeem and restore and renew right now. Let's pray. Oh God, we come to You thankful that You saw us in our low estate, not having nothing but dead, Your enemy. And yet You loved us enough to send Your Son to meet our greatest need. We needed someone to die for us. We needed to be saved, to be rescued, and You accomplished that on the cross. I pray that this morning and this week and the rest of the year, we would be able to feel Jesus meeting the needs of our lives and so be able to live more alive than we ever have been. I pray this in His mighty name. Amen.